remember when I was uh, younger, I watched a memorable DreamWorks animated film called Kung Fu Panda. Um, I was obsessed with watching martial arts films when, when I was just young growing up. And so even animated films geared toward children were a fair game for me. So anyways, in um, Kung Fu Panda, the main character, Po, a, a clumsy panda, is like a martial arts uh, fanatic that works at this noodle shop. And from the vantage point of the viewer, it appears that he has no hope of realizing his dream of learning Kung Fu. Uh, one day a Kung Fu tournament is held so that the Grandmaster Turtle would select the next Dragon Warrior, which basically is choosing the one and only destined Kung Fu Master capable of understanding the secret techniques and unlocking the limitless powers uh, said to be contained in the Dragon Scroll. And all the characters in this fantasy animal village expect the Dragon Warrior to be one of the Furious Five, like Tigress, Monkey, Mantis, Viper, Crane, proven warriors trained by uh, another Kung Fu master portrayed by a mouse. And their duty was to protect the village from evil, from evil villains. But to everyone's surprise, the Grandmaster Turtle chooses a clumsy panda bear. Thus begins post-training and pre preparation to become the Dragon Warrior, who will have to fend off the main antagonist and villain near the end of the movie. But training Poe proves to be difficult. He's mocked for his lack of skill. He gets destroyed one by one by each animal of the Furious Five. And he has, he's just visibly unimpressive. He has an apparent lack of fighting skills and no one in the village is impressed. But if there's one thing about Poe, it's that he never gives up. He doesn't lose heart. He's got spirit. So the master mouse employ, uh, employs a, a most unusual form of training. Using food like dumplings, which Poe, a tubby panda, enjoys very much. And so the viewer is shown clips of this Kung Fu master mouse training Poe, the panda as his disciple. Training takes the form of suffering hunger and not being able to eat until panda is able to harness the physical skill and dexterity to grab and steal the dumplings from the agile mouse. And from this form of suffering and trial, through time and much refinement in his speed and agility and mobility, he's finally able to get his food and eat. Who would have thought that this form of suffering, putting Poe in a situation to improve and refine his Kung Fu skills by forcing him to go through these trials in order to eat, would be the means by which he grows in his abilities so that he would later face tougher enemies in the movie. Yet that is exactly what transpired. And there was a purpose behind Poe's suffering of hunger to grow in his abilities to face what was to come. And while something similar is at play in our passage today, our faith grows in durability and in resiliency through trials, or put it a different way, our faith is strengthened and prepares us for eternal destiny through quite an unorthodox means, suffering, affliction, for these are the God-appointed and providential means by which uh, he grows our faith and prepares us for eternity with him. And so that's the key idea I want us to explore in our passage, that our faith grows in durability as we behold God's purposes in suffering and fix our eyes on eternity. But the question you're probably asking yourself is, how do we get there? How do we obtain this durability in our own faith, a resiliency? And to do that, I want to look at this passage in two parts. 
First, our confident hope when enduring suffering in verses 13 and 15. So it starts where Paul continues his thoughts from previous verses uh, where Joy left off and talked about how Paul likened himself as jars of clay and one who is seemingly weak and not exactly special from outer appearances. Yet what fuels him? What motivates him? What drives him to persevere in faithful ministry? What grounds his sacrificial service towards others so that the character of Christ would be formed in them through the gospel? It is the same spirit of faith, the same passion, the same heartfelt affection as he quotes the psalmist from the Old Testament, in particular referencing Psalm 116. Why? Because Paul has in mind the same attitude of belief, the same underlying ethos that the psalmist had when it came to faith in God during trials. In Psalm 116, the writer calls on the Lord Yahweh during a time of distress, and he describes his circumstances as snares of death encompassing him. The pains of death had a hold on him. He suffered from what uh, was happening to him as he describes his distress, anguish. Yet despite all this, the psalmist says in Psalm 116 verse 10, I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. And so what Paul shares in common with the psalmist is the same type of durable faith in times of trouble where faith is tested, where faith is refined. His faith is in line with the spiritual ancestors and the lineage of believers before him. So the same type of trust the psalmist has, Paul considers his own too. It applies to him as well. And his durable faith that endures during hardship is cut from the same cloth. His faith stems from the same mindset as those who walked before him and loved God, exuded from their lips and their life. And just like the psalmist spoke of his deliverance when he called upon the Lord, Paul also speaks and bears witness to the Lord's deliverance from difficulty and death. So Paul himself was no stranger to various kinds of suffering. He saw the glorious treasure of the gospel held in earthen vessel, jars of clay, which symbolized ordinary, unspectacular, broken, imperfect nature of Christ's servants. Yet despite one's weakness, and though one is perceived to be lowly and without any glory, any personal merit, Paul was given an incredible, flawless treasure, the good news of the gospel, so that he may boldly proclaim the gospel, showcasing, showcasing the surpassing power of God to save and transform lives through the message concerning his son, Jesus Christ. Now at this point, when we look at Paul's life, we may be thinking to ourselves, well, good on Paul, but I'm no Paul. I lack that confidence to speak about Christ. I lack that boldness to speak of God's goodness in times of affliction. That's when I clam up. That's when I lose sight of the glories of the cross. I definitely need to grow in my faith when it comes to hardships and trials that God in his providence brings into my life. Well, if that's you and I place myself in the same shoes as you, though perhaps wearing a different size, there is hope for all of us. Hope in Christ for life and death. And the source of hope that Paul draws from is brought to our attention in verse 14. There's a confident reality concerning his future that drives his present faith when Paul writes and, and should drive our faith as well in the here and now. What was it that gave Paul's faith traction to move forward in life? 
despite the road conditions he encounters, whatever hazards may come his way, or potholes he may be caught, up, uh, caught in as he goes about life day by day. Verse 14 tells us the source of his confidence. This knowing, this ongoing acknowledgement of a particular truth is what gave him such confident hope. The truth that he speaks is the reality of a resurrected Messiah, a crucified Savior that was not held within the grave, but resurrected bodily, as we just sang. This was the bombshell of confidence in gospel truth that Paul draws for his own heart. Quintessential to the good news of the gospel uh, concerning Jesus Christ certainly includes his his blameless, his, his righteous life, how he laid down his life and took the penalty of sin that we deserved upon himself so that we might be forgiven and made right with God. But also essential to the good news isn't that Jesus died, but that he rose from the dead. And that glorious truth we find ourselves coming back to time and time again, once a year on Easter Sunday, yet at the same time should never be confined to Easter Sunday in it of itself. I remember um, a time when I was uh, still living in uh, LA. I was living with other Christian guys uh, and we were all members of the same local church. My housemate and I had a, a mutual love for singing and music. And so we had a lively discussion one day centered around music genres and what we like to listen during certain times or situations uh, of the year. And the discussion centered around a question maybe you've heard before or found yourself debating. The question was this, when is it appropriate or the right time of the year to start start listening to Christmas music? And so I shared with him that I enjoy listening to Christmas music as soon as Thanksgiving is over. I felt like it was the best time to transition to the Christmas season, but not like too early, you know, that takes away from Thanksgiving. After all, most people start thinking about Christmas as soon as Black Friday hits where there's a lot of consumers trying to get good deals uh, at malls, people frequenting stores to buy gifts uh, for loved ones and themselves leading up to Christmas Day. But my friend, who seemingly asked that question with innocence in casual passing conversation, had actually, he, he laid a trap uh, for me. If I may be bold to say and call myself Admiral Akbar, he, he laid a theological trap. He answered with this like mischievous smirk on his face, well, Chris... You should know better that it's actually always an appropriate time to listen to Christmas music all year long. And at that moment, I knew exactly where he was going with the question uh, he had ensnared me with to demonstrate a theological point and prove he had the high ground while my mind was preoccupied with lesser songs like Chestnuts Roasting Over an Open Fire or Mariah Carey's Christmas List or Hits. So he began to share um, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his virgin birth and coming to earth to dwell among us in the flesh isn't just for Christmas. These are always important truths to keep in mind about our Savior. And obviously I I understood where he was going and the point he was trying to make, um, though I feel kind of duped at this point. And the point he made that I affirmed afterward was, you know, yeah, it is always good to remind ourselves of truth surrounding the eternal Son of God in spirit, taking on the form of man, thus having a human nature that would be forever inseparable from his divine nature. And in doing so, he is able to be our substitute for sin, for he has a fully human nature in union with his divine nature. And I had to reassure him that I understood the person of Christ and that my Christology was on point. 
And in a similar way, just as it's always good to consider the incarnation of Christ, it's always good for followers of Jesus to consider the truth of his resurrection. And that it should be on the forefront of our minds because of what it means for us as we go through life. Why? Because a gospel of a crucified Savior that remains dead and in the grave is no good news at all. This much was understood by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 where he writes, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. Strong words, right? Our faith is in vain. Yet this, is, this would be true, hypothetically speaking, if Christ was not resurrected. If his physical body was not brought back to new life. In fact, shortly afterward in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that those who have died in Christ have perished for good. They would be gone forever. And so our hope in Christ would be for this life only. And if that were the case, we are all people to be pitied the most because we have believed and followed a dead guy. We trusted in a dead guy that spoke of eternal life, of life everlasting, yet the speaker's own life, the Son of God, did not experience this reality for himself. So an understanding of Christ's resurrection is essential to the gospel, if it is truly a gospel of hope and reconciliation. But it's also a source of confidence for a believer's walk, for you and me, during troubling times, during perilous times. And Paul had this full assurance of what lies in store for his future because of his faith in Christ's bodily resurrection and what it meant for him. The promise of his bodily resurrection meant that just as, just as by faith we are saved and made right with the holy and just God, it is by faith in Christ's resurrection that we will be brought into the presence of this holy and just God one day in our new physical bodies, eternal physical bodies. And something he constantly kept in his periphery, like he wrote in 2 Corinthians 1.9, where the sense of death approaching made him rely not on himself, but on God who raises the dead. Christ's definitive past action of rising from death to new life is the bedrock of hope that fuels our faith when we, like Paul, where the psalmist experiences the weight of suffering and afflictions in this broken, sin-cursed world. I'd like for us to consider the words of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German Luther, uh, Lutheran pastor theologian who was also an anti-Nazi dissident and uh, as the SS judge prepared him and sentenced him for death, his last words before being hanged were simply this. This is for me the end, the beginning of life. See, for Bonhoeffer, who was in Christ, death was considered his ultimate freedom, a powerful testimony of his faith in the resurrection. The resurrection isn't just a doctrine or truth for the future, but a truth that ought to be ingrained in our minds and in the present. It's a gospel-centered lens for how followers of Christ view the, the, the days before them here on earth. But Bonhoeffer didn't obtain such a, a durable faith and boldness and conviction overnight. Or at least I doubt it just happened overnight as the noose was tied around his neck, which was soon to, be, uh, soon to strangle him until his last breath. It was consistent daily recognition of who he was in Christ, as it was Paul's understanding of who he was in Christ. It was interwoven with his understanding of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, that we share in his sufferings, but we will also share in Christ's resurrection. 
And the same applies for us Christians today. Because the trajectory of our lives, despite afflictions and trials we may encounter bodily, just as Jesus did, will only lead to one outcome, resurrection victory. And so these verses should challenge our sometimes myopic vision when it comes to the pains and hardships we experience in life. And so we need this hope to infiltrate and permeate our hearts more and more as the day draws near where we will meet our Savior. Listen to the words of Richard Baxter, who was a Puritan who wrote in his work, The Saints' Everlasting Rest, on how to prepare for our eternal rest with God. He encourages believers to employ our minds in order to fire up our hearts or to quote-unquote prime our hearts for God through a practice known as biblical meditation. And really what this practice consists of is recalling words from Scripture concerning our future, especially our resurrection, during times of trial and affliction. And so drawing from the storehouse of God's word, we can recall and speak to our future in Christ. It's because it's during these times that other matters weigh greatly on our hearts. It's when we fall on hard times that our hearts are prone to wander and God's thoughts get pushed to the side from our hearts. It's during these times that the mission of God and the gospel, we are called to proclaim and trust in daily gets sidelined, gets forgotten. Therefore, it's critical that we weigh the heavy burdens that we experience in life. It's of the utmost importance that we weigh the present things that trouble us against the scales of truth, against the scale of biblical reasoning. So Baxter writes, Meditation is simply reading over and repeating God's reasons to our hearts and so disputing with ourselves in his arguments and terms. Meditation puts reason in its proper place of authority. It helps deliver reason from its captivity to the senses and sets it again on the throne of the soul. Thus you see what force meditation has to bring about this great elevation of the soul. Consideration must be the instrument. So consider the truths that speak to your everlasting trajectory in life. Why? Because when we do that, it adds reason after reason until the scale of your current afflictions is outweighed by the scale of hope and joy you ought to have in your future resurrection. This time and place is what Paul speaks about when, he, when we are brought into the presence of Christ and live with him forever. So church, this is something that we must ask of ourselves. When you are facing hard times, that your hard times don't lead you to have hard hearts, where you don't clearly see God's purposes in your suffering. You, despite the trials and afflictions of life, Paul persevered, and here in verse 15, he, he ties our future resurrection and laces it together with an additional motivation, a motivation for himself as much as it is for today, motivation to persevere in the service of God, even when life isn't comfortable, even when life is not easy for you. And this motivation is boiled down to this, one thing that he had in mind, the impact of gospel ministry on others that in turn lead to, to more and more people praising God with thanksgiving, which ultimately glorifies God. What does this all teach us about ministry so that more and more people to praise God, which ultimately leads to God being glorified? That we ought to preoccupy our lives in the transformation of others through the gospel. And how does this happen? 
Well, when me and you are engaged in the work of proclaiming our hope in Christ so that people are saved and thank God as they then testify through their own life of the powerful work of God in and through them because of Christ. And so here we see a sacrifice and a pursuit worth dying for, an endeavor worthy of the utmost devotion and sacrifice, even at the expense of our own self-comfort and self-interest. Why? Because in doing so, Christ is being formed in people of all tribes, nations, tongues, cities, communities, as God is glorified through that. This is how the gospel advances in the world and brings about greater worship rendered unto God, thus bringing glory and fame to his name. It's the reason why missions exist, as John Piper writes, because worship does it in certain places in this world. And so people gripped by this reality are willing to make extreme sacrifices knowing that it's worked for them because it is ultimately going to lead to the thanking and praise of God as people who are lost come to the light and glorify God. This is the healthy dose of perspective that all followers of Jesus need. Accepting our fragile jars of clay existence may be difficult for us as we draw near to God in our frailty, but it's ultimately our highest good and it's aligned with God's purposes. So now that we looked at how the reality of our resurrection is a great source of hope when suffering for God's glory, please turn your attention to the next point that focuses on eternal life. For eternal life is a resounding theme that, that's needed in our lives because we oftentimes become discouraged. So that's the second point, needed encouragement for enduring faith in verses 16 to 18. Uh, upon first glance, the contrast that Paul gives appears kind of paradoxical. But keep in mind, the purpose is quite plain and clear. He includes himself in this encouragement as well. And this encouraging plea to believers is simply yet profound. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't let your faith waver. Don't let discouragement concerning this world have the last word. Don't let your soul be cast down in despair. So the comparisons Paul makes between our outer self and our inner self, light and momentary affliction versus eternal weight of glory, the things seen versus the things unseen, they serve as a singular motivation and principle. And these comparisons are intended to, to cut through the cloud of suffering and trouble so we would see that to have Jesus in our life is truly better. That the life we have in Christ is truly the good life, despite all arguments that would say otherwise. But he does this by addressing the realities of the present life with the life to come. And we need this, do we not? First, he speaks of the outer self wasting away. Yet while it's happening, What's greater is the spiritual reality of his inner self being made new in the image of Christ. I know there's high schoolers in here as well as college students, maybe even some middle school youth, kids. So the idea of outer self, human bodies deteriorating, isn't probably something that runs across your mind at your age. So let me demonstrate by offering myself as a case study of wasting away. Every time I go to the dentist recently, I'm reminded of the bone loss and gum recession, which is pretty bad for my age, 
but there's nothing they can do about it. I have lower back pain, which is likely a culmination of weak core, posterior chain, muscle groups, poor posture from years of sitting down at a government desk job, plus four more years of sitting down eight to 10 hours of day during a seminary, listening to lectures, reading thousands of pages and writing hundreds of uh, pages for sermons and research papers in a library basement on hard wooden seats. And so when I compare my, even when I compare my online dating profile from two to three years ago to what I actually look like now, because I have old, older pictures, right? I'm pretty sure my hair is a lot less full and it's been thinning out, which is basically me self-diagnosing myself with alopecia, medical lingo for uh, onset male pattern baldness. And so I'm starting to get more and more white hair, which means in comparison to the, the much younger and youthful Pastor Gabriel, if he is called uncle, pretty soon the middle schoolers, I'm pretty sure are going to start calling me grandpa. And I really think that's going to be a fact pretty soon. You see, our, our outer selves are decaying. We age. No amount of Botox, supplements, pills, nor surgeries can prevent the inevitable in this life. The fountain of youth is fool's gold, a hopeless pipe dream. The process of aging is evident in our bodies. We become disease-ridden. We get weak. Our minds become dull and become less sharp. We all decay and deteriorate, even if it happens at a different rate for each of us. And so this is the broken world marked by the death we live in. Older guys who still play basketball, I'm sure you feel this way. Playing basketball now in maybe your late 30s or 40s, just isn't the same, right? Especially when you're like a father with kids. You want to play with like a 30 plus group, you know? You don't want to play with the young ones at 18, right? Retired empty nesters who are old enough in here where you're, you're actually required to withdraw from social security. I'm sure you feel this sense of aging, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to target seniors, okay, by the way. <laughs> Despite our bodies being marked by weakness and deterioration compared to our maybe more youthful 20s, there is a profound reality at play in the lives of Christians who are seasoned in the faith over years, over decades. Our inner self, our immaterial part, our spirit is maturing and growing. Even while our outer bodies are dying, God is at work on our inside, the eternal part of ourselves that will go on to live forever. Pastor theologian Tim Savage makes a keen observation about the connection between bodily suffering and future glory, as evident in Paul's life and his devotion to Christ. He writes, His outer afflictions serve to multiply the glory of his inner man, his critics fail to see this increasing weight of glory because it is accumulating in his heart, a place hidden to their eternally minded outlook. And that's precisely why Paul was confidently able to say to live as Christ, to die as gain in Philippians 1.21. Yet this goes against the grain of thinking and the prevailing culture of the ancient world that Paul lived in, where affliction, trouble, weakness, sickness, trouble, only garner pity or wonder, is that person maybe under God's judgment? Oh, that Paul guy appearing so physically weak and battered in the service of Christ, is God really at work in a man like that? How can that be attractive on a rule? How and why would God use someone like him? Paul was certainly judged and questioned over outer appearances, 
and so often goes to thinking of others in this world, judging only by outer appearances and what can be seen, blinded to the realities of how God works in this world and the blessings in store for those who faithfully follow him, serve him. And what Paul desired for the believers in Corinth to comprehend that's just as applicable today is that followers of Jesus are being transformed into glory from one degree to another, something he mentioned earlier in chapter 3. But now he connects the dots. This inner transformation takes place even as our earthly bodies are pointing to physical death. And so there's a continuous process of renewal and spiritual direction for our lives. But that's not all. As we experience an age through various trials, we have yet another encouragement in verse 17, that our afflictions are considered to just be for a while. Light, feathery, like strands of dust against the heavy weight of glory, far much better than we can possibly fathom with our narrow-viewed, temporarily-focused minds. That's not to say that Paul minimizes your suffering that you may be going through. Though suffering is real, it belongs only to this age. That's a point that he's trying to make in contrast to the age to come, which is eternal forever and ever without end. For God promised that in the age to come, he will wipe away every tear from his people's eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Revelation 21.4. Not only that, we must not miss the reality that our momentary temporal suffering in this life, it actually doesn't go against God's purposes, nor does it overturn it. But rather, God achieves this inner renewal in us by using our affliction, using our suffering to produce glory. So God is purposely achieving something in our inner spiritual renewal, in our spiritual life even now. You see, our suffering is the actual process. Suffering is the process that produces future glory in the age to come. In other words, suffering refines and prepares us for our destiny. And so while Paul never sugarcoats the experience of suffering in this world, that there is no promise of escape from the burdens of physical ailments, declining strength with age, or worldly nobility and a success that would garner the praise of this world, what Jesus offers is better. I like how one commentary on these verses frames our future eternal glory compared to what we experience in the present. He says, Following Jesus entails both perseverance in the midst of suffering and self-denial for the sake of others, and perhaps even suffering for Christ. But such suffering is never a sacrifice. As believers, we never give up more than we receive in Christ. Whatever we give up in the present, even life itself, pales in comparison to what God will grant us in the future. Church, that is the encouragement we need, the eternal perspective so that our faith would grow and to become more durable when suffering comes our way, when things get difficult and you realize your own weakness. For those are opportunities by which God refines you and prepares you for eternity with him. Your faith is being strengthened and renewed in real time as you draw near to Christ and learn and grow to take him at his word, at his promises. I want to end today by telling a story that encouraged me recently to endure in my faith, and I hope will be an encouragement to you as well. 
It's a true story about a dear couple, a brother and sister in Christ, who were recently separated due to the death of the spouse, his wife. She passed away last month, leaving behind her husband and their two young sons, only a few years each. We originally met when I was in seminary, uh, where I befriended the couple as we served in the same church. And one thing that I remember very distinctly about this couple was their mutual love for God and unshakable joy in all circumstances. They both endured much hardship in life, yet had a mutual desire to serve the Lord overseas as missionaries in Japan. She, the wife, had even translated one of uh, theologian Paul Tripp's books into Japanese, which is widely used in uh, biblical counseling in Japan. And so last year, once the husband finished seminary, their family began fundraising and raising support with the hope of being sent off by uh, the church as missionaries to Japan, a nation where many, a majority, are without hope for they've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet last fall was when their light affliction would be magnified for them, especially the wife. You see, she was admitted to the the ER in August last year. And so she had to be hospitalized as her abdomen was swollen and with much pain. Soon after her biopsy results came back and she was diagnosed with stage four cancer, notified that it had already spread. And in order to go through chemotherapy, she would have to have colon surgery first. And so she underwent surgery within a month And then starting October of last year, began chemotherapy to fight a a rare aggressive cancer known as uh, peritoneal colon cancer. And it's at this point, I want to provide brief excerpts from their family updates concerning uh, his his, his wife and her battle uh, through chemotherapy, a battle of cancer through chemotherapy treatment. November 1st, treatment number one, husband writing. She had a rough experience from the first day of chemo. Nausea was bad as she threw up even during chemo admin administration. But what was even worse was shortness of breath. She struggled with breathing for about one whole day. About two months later, January 5th, treatment number five. She had issues with belly distension and shortness of breath, which led her to go to the ER. Increased pain meds are somewhat helpful to alleviate her discomfort. She also saw her oncologist to hear about the CT scan results, which brought some great news that chemo is working. Not less than a month later, January 21st, treatment number six. It's been a rough week. She had chemo on her birthday. Friends from church came to her home to surprise her that evening. It really brightened her day. However, her physical issues got worse on Saturday and she had to go to the ER on Sunday. Her physical issues still continue without clear solutions. She's pretty discouraged and needs encouragement as well as solutions to her physical problems. February 4th, hospice care. Her health declined much in January. There's no medical solution. She's transitioned to hospice care, which means end of life. February 7th, three days later, hospice care. It's a very heavy trial in our lives to say the least. We don't know why this is happening to us, but it's okay. God is in control. We know him and we're his children. His plans are better than ours because he is an infinitely wise and he is, an, he is infinitely good. Below are some of the truths and promises that give us hope. And I hope that writing these will help uh, me and her come back to this unshakable hope in the days to come. 
and be helpful for you as you go through this experience with us in a variety of ways. First, all of our days are numbered. None of us live one second beyond the time that God has set for each of us. And each day that is given to us is a precious gift of God. Two, God is good all the time. Three, while sinners don't deserve anything good, God has graciously given us so many good things. Rather than demanding him to give us more, we must be content with the good things we have. Four, even when we don't understand every detail, we can rely on God's ways. Five, Jesus conquered death by his resurrection, and in him, God has given us victory over death. Six, Jesus promised to give us peace that is beyond our comprehension. Seven, for Christians to die is gain. In death, we depart from our body and our spirit will be with our Lord Jesus forever. We will also receive spiritual inheritance in heaven. Eight, one of the purposes of sufferings in our lives is to receive God's special comfort and even to share that comfort with others who are suffering. Nine, God is with us, not only through sufferings, but into eternity. And then last month, February 18th, home sweet home. She went home, heaven, to be present with her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, she's not resting in peace. She is joyfully singing to her Savior. As she lost everything in this life, she gained more of Jesus because she is with him now. We are rejoicing about her life both on earth and in heaven. We're also grieving over the loss of a wonderful sister in Christ, a kind wife and mother and daughter and friend in this life. I'm terribly sad, husband speaking. But for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we embrace the blood-bought promise of God to be with her and our Savior soon. When our short lives on earth come to an end, and we are also called into his kingdom. All glory be to God who gives us life. Sunset Church, we grieve death, but we already remember that we are not those who grieve without hope. We cry, we lament, we suffer, we're afflicted, we face trials. But church, let us not lose sight of our destiny as this couple, this family, sought. Let God's promises comfort and nourish your hearts to trust what he says, that he is refining your faith. He is growing your trust day by day, even as that day draws near, where we will see Christ, our Lord and Savior, face to face. Will you pray with me? Father God, there are many things in this world that can bring us down, that can lead us to be despondent, to lose hope. Or... But I pray that in those times, we would be able to recall your promises. We would be able to recall the good news, the message of hope concerning your son. And he not only died for us, but he rose for us to give us hope. So as we journey through this life as pilgrims, as sojourners, and we experience various forms of things and experiences that batter our lives, that leave us weak in spirit, help us draw on that foundation of hope 
that you have promised us, that we are headed toward the celestial city, that we will get to be with you forever. Where there is no sin, there is no brokenness, there is no death, there is no deterioration, there is no disease, Lord. There is no suffering. For it will all be good. And we will be able to sing with eternal joy to the good, the good giver of such a gift and such a life. You, God, for you are worthy of praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.